Hey, podcast listeners, it's Joe Pastor, the producer. Are you a fan of our podcast? Well, here's a chance to be part of one of our episodes. We have a podcast episode currently in the works where we plan to delve into process safety professionals' personal stories about why they are passionate about process safety, and we'd love to hear from you. So we want to know, why is process safety important to you? Did learning about a major industry incident impact how you felt about process safety? Or did you or someone you know have a firsthand encounter with a catastrophic event or even a near miss? So what can you do if you'd like to contribute to the episode? You can send us your thoughts via email and we will read them during the episode. Or you can record a short voice message using your phone and send it to podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks and hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. I'm Molly Myers, and I'm back again with Rob Bartlett. Today, we're going to be talking about operator training. This is a first of a two-part series on this topic. We'll start out with initial operator training in this podcast episode, and in the second podcast in the series, we'll discuss refresher training and some other special topics. So, Molly, for today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the regulatory requirements and best practices for getting operators ready to run a process safely, especially, obviously, for PSM or RMP covered processes. We'll talk through the training steps roughly in the order that it makes sense to lay a good foundation for the operators. Although, as with most things related to, to PSM, there's no specific requirements about order of things, and there's a lot of latitude for how to make sure that we train people. And the key here is that we want to make sure that we get them all the information that they need to safely operate their process. So, Molly, why don't you get us going into uh, the new operator training requirements? Yeah, so this assumes that the operators are brand new to the facility, maybe brand new to chemical facilities, chemical processing. Mm -hmm. uh, so a good place to start is with the chemical hazards and reviewing the safety data sheets, the SDSs. Make sure that they're familiar with what those are and all the information that's included in those. It covers the hazards for each of the chemicals, typical personal protective equipment that may be required, responses to spills and upsets or exposures, some of the physical properties of the materials, any toxicities, corrosivity, so forth. So that's a good starting point for anything. That information is probably also covered in the SOPs, but mm -hmm. it's good to start out with those base SDSs. And also and then, make sure that they know where to find them because exactly. they're probably at some point going to want to go back and look for that information. Yeah, and even if the information is in the SOPs, sometimes the SOPs are very abbreviated and it just refers mm -hmm. to the SDSs. Yeah, yeah. Next, it seems prudent to start with a general process overview and a mm -hmm. tour of the facility mm -hmm. so they understand where they're going to be working 
get a feel for some of the equipment, the size of the scale, the layout of the equipment, and a very high level understanding of what is it that is going on in the unit. What types of processes do they have? Do they have chemical reactions going on? Do they have distillations, phase separations, so forth? So give them a really nice, broad overview that then they can start building the details from there. Yeah, and that's really the key is you want to you want to establish that framework for them to start building the the knowledge about the process. So the next thing on our list here is access control. So part of process safety management is that we have to control the access to our covered processes. So this is a good time to introduce them to things like what are our policies about visitors coming into the process. It may be different for a PSM covered portion of a plant, let's just say, versus a non-PSM covered portion of the plant. What PPE is required? Is it just general hard hat safety glasses, you know, safety shoes, or do you need to have an escape respirator or whatever? What orientation information, make sure that they, uh, that they are oriented to the process, especially if they're going to be alone in the process at any point in the near future. And then also vehicle entry, um, any policies, procedures about that. At the end of the day, the operators are the ones that are there 24-7 or okay. however often the, the process is operating. So we want to make sure that they understand who's who's allowed in, who's not allowed in, right. and what those policies are. And also those operators are probably eventually going to be the point person for anyone coming to the process to check in. Yep. So if they are expected to provide any uh, visitors or non-routine personnel with some sort of orientation, they need to be aware of what those requirements are and how to uh, deliver that information as needed. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we've kind of given the overview. We know the chemical hazards. We understand the access control. The next thing really is to start getting the people familiar with the process equipment that we're going to be using, pumps, valves, instruments, agitators, you mentioned earlier, distillation columns. This is all equipment that they're going to be operating, and we need to make sure that they understand not just that, hey, that's a that's a heat exchanger, but mm -hmm. what does it do? What does it look like on the inside? How many tubes does it have? What's on the shell side? What's on the tube side? All of those things are going to be important as they continue to understand more of the process. And then down the line, having them understand that information is especially important for troubleshooting, for being able to take what they're seeing on, say, a control board or on a DCS or something, and understanding what's actually going on in their process. So giving right. them basic information, and some of that might actually be, this is what a ball valve looks like on the inside. This um, is a relief oh, valve. This or... is a relief valve. Or you know, sometimes you, you, you can luck out and, oh, we're doing, you know, we're doing um, an in, internal inspection to, you know, this week on such and such a reactor. So, oh, look, now you can actually see what it looks like on the inside. Right. And you should take that opportunity whenever you can to make it so that, they, that the operators understand exactly what it is the equipment's doing. Right. If, if you're fortunate enough to have a large facility and have personnel with expert knowledge on some of those types of process equipment, whether it be maintenance or troubleshooting or operations or frequent problems that may come up with that type of equipment, whether it be, you know, centrifugal pumps or positive displacement pumps, whatever it is, you might want to have them come and talk to the operators a little bit and share some of their knowledge to bring that level up as a basic understanding of the components of the process. Yeah, the more and the more the folks understand those components, the better they're going to be able to understand what they're doing when they're operating and the better they're going to be able to troubleshoot 
and or deal with emergencies that come up if they actually understand that. Exactly. Yep. So what else so, we got, Molly? Once I've got kind of those building blocks, then it's time yeah. to really start digging into the process. Okay. And it's important to go through your SOPs, your standard operating procedures. Start with all your normal process type things. What are mm. they going to be doing on a day in, day out basis? What are the typical process steps? Include field tours and observations. If there's routine sampling, make sure that they see how that's done. If there's process adjustments and setting up equipment, configurations and things like that, make sure that they see how that works and understand it and look at the SOPs and follow it step by step and make sure that they get a chance to ask any questions and clarify any of those descriptions that may not be as clearly spelled out as you'd like. Make sure that you discuss your operating limits, your consequences of deviation, and the responses to deviations. Those are all uh, regulatory requirements that be in the SOPs, and so the operators need to understand where that information is and how to understand that and read those tables. Usually they're in a table format and know what those limits are and what they're supposed to do, and if they don't follow through, what could happen so that they know the priority and the reasoning behind those actions. And then once you've got a good basis on your standard and normal operating modes, next up is to review the SOPs for some of the non-standard operating modes, like your emergency shutdowns, any sort of abnormal operations, or any other infrequently used SOPs. If you're a continuous process, you may not do a startup and shutdown routinely, so make sure you go over that information. If it's not possible to observe those or non-standard steps in action, then look at doing some sort of simulation or tabletop exercise or something like that to work through with the operators, not only reading the procedure, but talking through what would they do. This is especially true for emergency shutdowns and other emergency actions that are expected of them so that they understand if they see this happen, they need to take these steps right away to put the process in a safe condition. I've seen a lot of uh, examples of talking operators and looking at their training and, you know, they may have kind of been shown the SOP for what to do in case of an emergency or some sort of abnormal operation, but they were not at all prepared for it actually happening in the real world. So we definitely want to make sure that we go over that information with them. We, you know, we tabletop it. We, you know, I mean, there's some folks with, you know, the resources to actually have, you know, the ability to do some good drills, you know, depending on the level of hazard in your process, that definitely is something that should be part of your, uh, your training program. Exactly. Okay, so the next one on our list here is safe work practices, and this is a subset of our procedures and our policies, and this is covering things like hot work, lockout, tagout, confined space, line breaking, fall protection, etc. And we want to make sure that we not only are, that we're telling them what the hot work program is and what a hot work permit is or lot or whatever, but also that we focus on what their responsibilities as operators are. As operators, they're the ones who are day in and day 
payout responsible for the equipment, for the process itself, right. for, for the sa- for it running safely. And that includes uh, when we take it down, we've got to make sure that we're communicating to folks who are doing work, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to make right. sure that not only are we giving overview sorts of information about these safe work practices, but we're also making sure that they understand that what their level of involvement is going to be for those safe work practices. Right. For example, lockout, tagout. Oftentimes, folks will involve not just the maintenance folks, but also operators whenever they do lockout tagout to make sure that the job is done correctly, that we're right. actually isolating all of the sources of energy. And yeah, if the, the operator operators, is the one who really knows that, go ahead. Yeah, if the operators aren't the one writing the actual permit, they're certainly heavily involved in yeah. the handoff from operations to typically maintenance or whoever is doing the work under those safe work practices. So they need to have a lot more extensive training than maybe you might do as an overview for any other type of new hire in your process or in your facility. Yeah. So we need to make sure that our operators understand what they're supposed to be doing within the whole safe work practices. And then the other along, kind of along the same lines, another thing that we need to make sure that we train them on is how they're expected to interact with maintenance, right? These are these are folks who, again, operating day in and day out. So they're probably the ones that would be required to put work requests into the computerized maintenance system or, you know, maybe interacting with the maintenance supervisor or the planner scheduler saying, hey, this is really an issue. We need to get this done or this is causing this sort of a problem. We also need them to prepare equipment for maintenance, make sure we drain things, we decon them if we need to. They need to be involved with a return to service process, whatever that might be. And then also, you know, these are hopefully folks, and I've talked about this before, that when we have MOCs, we want to make sure that anytime we change our process, that we do a management of change for that. And our operators should be part of the process for holding folks accountable. So if somebody comes in to put to replace a valve with a different valve, hopefully the operators are part of that process to make sure that the MOC is done before we make the change. So our, our operators, it's very important that they are interacting with the maintenance department, with the maintenance folks for any work that's being done right. on their equipment, or even even if it's facilities issues related to not the specific equipment, but the building, the room, whatever right. it is, we got to make sure that those operators know how they should be interacting. Right. And it's not just maintenance. It could also be contractors, contractors that are out making yeah. changes as well. Absolutely. So. Yeah, and so that kind of leads to also expectations for the operators on a day-in, day-out basis. They'll typically be required to do some operating rounds. And so it's important to explain to them what they're supposed to be looking for. They should be using all of their senses to check for problems. If they notice any odors or hear anything that sounds off, if they've got some sort of whistle or hissing or something like that, that may be indicative of a leak, they need to check that out. They need to understand what sort of PPE is required, both for the normal operating rounds or if they're trying to investigate a potential leak, do they need to upgrade that PPE as they're continuing those rounds? What sort of frequency do they need to do? There may be some things that they need to do on an hourly basis. Some things are at the beginning or end of a shift. Some things may be on a weekly basis, so forth. So they need to understand what all the different rounds are and what the requirements are and frequencies are and how those are logged, you know, if they've got specific reporting requirements for any of that. 
And then if they determine that there is a problem in one of those rounds, how do they report it? What's the paperwork process for reporting those? Is there any specific time frames? Sometimes if you have a leak or a spill, you not only have to set the wheels in motion for remedying that leak immediately, but there may be some environmental reporting requirements that need to get kicked off immediately. There are certain time frames that things have to be reported to mm -hmm. regulatory agencies. So it's important that the operators understand what they need to do, what their responsibilities are with regard to monitoring the process on a day in a day out basis. And this is so vital because if you think about, you know, many incidents that happen, many of them start with small events like, you know, a small release that you can smell or you can hear or something. Mm -hmm. And if we jump on that and we address it, it doesn't turn into something much more significant. You know, I, I've got experience with, with a site that had just that sort of thing happening that as operators were in the area, they they heard something and unfortunate and, and it ended up being a significant leak of a solvent and they and, and, bef mm. and before they were able to find out where the leak was coming from it actually found an ignition source um, oh. but that but that sort of yeah it was, wasn't it was a very bad day but that sort but that's the sort of that's the sort of situation that if they had been a little bit more lucky and were able to find the source a little bit more quickly they probably could have prevented that from happening mm -hmm. because of the operator rounds. So, okay. So the next two are kind of ones that folks don't always throw into their training program and they really need to. The first one is reviewing the key high risk scenarios from the PHA for the process. So we're talking about training now. We're not talking about PHAs. Why do we care about <laughs> PHAs at this point, right? Well, the PHA is a valuable document in a lot of different ways. And one of them is with a PHA, we've taken a step-by-step -step approach to mm -hmm. looking at our process to actually determine what are our highest risk scenarios without any safeguards? What are the safety critical safeguards that we have in place? And what are the highest risk ones, even with our safeguards in place, what are our highest risk scenarios? All of that is in the PHA. Isn't right. that something that somebody new coming in would find very valuable to know? Like, oh, that's why we have that LEL meter. Oh, that's why that temperature interlock is so important. Some and of that stuff is included in the operating limits and consequences of deviation, but the PHA lays it out in a little bit different fashion mm -hmm. and highlights some of the things that really could go wrong if you don't have all these safeguards functioning appropriately. And some of those safeguards include the operator response. Oh, that, that's without without a doubt. That's that's the most important, in my mind, the most important thing from the PHA, only because we're now for those sorts of safeguards with some sort of alarm with an operator action, we're relying on the operators to do something. Right. So we've got right. to make sure that we're training them on what those steps are to do. If you right. get a high level alarm on this tank, this is what you do. If you get a low temperature alarm on that part of the process, this is what you do. And if you don't do it, here's the scenario that could happen. We could have a leak and blow something up, or we could, right. you know, have a leak and have a release of H2S and somebody could die. So yeah, I know, you know that early uh, on is the time to do that. Go ahead. A lot of times people complain that PHAs are just really tedious and boring and so forth. But I have had they are. 
<laughs> they are. But, but there's I value have, to them. Go ahead. Yeah, I have had an operator. Usually you'll, you'll want an experienced operator. And there have been times where I've had an operator come tell me at the end of a PHA when I'm done facilitating saying, you know, I actually learned an awful lot, even though I've been oh, yeah. running that process for years. And I actually wish we could run all of our new operators through this. Right. So and there is know, a lot to be is, learned from those. And I've had the same experience. It rare is the PHA where I don't have an op- the operator who was in there say, wow, I learned something. But the thing is, is that your new operators, they don't they don't need to sit through the whole PHA because the information, the information right. is right there in the, in the worksheets in the documents. So definitely valuable. So bring that into your training program and go over, at least go over the high risk scenarios with the new, with the new folks. And then the other one I want to throw out there was related to incidents. I talked a little bit about the one uh, from earlier in my career. Virtually every process, unless it's a brand new process, has some sort of incidents that have happened in the past and not just, and, and maybe not just incidents that happen, but near misses as well. Right. Uh, hopefully you've got a process to, you've got some sort of reporting process that captures that information. It's important that our operators who are coming in understand, oh, this happened back, you know, back five years ago and we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. Right. You here know, are the, here are the things that, that we changed yeah. and this is why those are important or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we definitely want to, we definitely want to include that, you know, that sort of information because, you know, I've got clients where I've seen this unfortunately play out where, you know, you have a big incident, everybody suddenly gets religion about process safety or everybody is all into MOCs and you know, and, and PHAs and everything. And then over time, obviously, if you get, as you get away from that, the focus diminishes, that's, that is is human nature. But then also as you have turnover and you don't impart that, that knowledge on the new folks, that whole religion aspect of it, that the really, the, the folks really understanding, this is why we do PSM is to make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen. If we don't do that for the new folks, we are contributing to the degradation of, of our PSM program. Yeah, that should be part of your institutional knowledge, if you will, Absolutely. that yep. everybody at the site understands those key items. It, maybe you're lucky enough that you've never had a significant incident, but if you have, make sure to review those. And I actually recently had a had a situation where I hadn't been on, on at this client facility in a while, and there had in the past there had been a significant incident, and most of the people in the room weren't there at the time. And I'm like, did you, do you know what happened? Oh, and they had a few of the details, but they didn't know exactly what happened. They'd never seen photos of, you know, of a gut of a building that was gutted by a vapor cloud explosion. And so they, they had no, they had no idea. And this is mm-hmm. simply because it was, it was not, you know, they heard a little bit of it, you know, kind of like through the grapevine, but there was no <laughs> robust way that was being used to pass on that institutional knowledge. So, okay, what else we got, Molly? Okay, so we've kind of covered a lot of the topics that should be included in the training. And the last key point is verification. Verification? Yeah. Can't we just say, hey, you've got the information, go forth and do good things, right? No, we got to verify it? That might have been okay, you know, (laughs) 40, 50 years ago. Okay. (laughs) We're, We're dating ourselves. Yes, but that doesn't quite cut it nowadays. So the PSM and RMP standards require that you verify and document Uh, the training for your operators. And best practices includes utilizing several different 
methods of doing that. So mm -hmm. what we suggest is doing several like uh, written tests on the initial material where you're talking about the SDS forms and some of your key process steps or pieces of equipment, things of that sort, some of that early yeah. information we talked about. The, that's typically done in like a classroom setting with some field tours. And so that's a perfect opportunity to utilize those written tests and uh, document it that way. Mm -hmm. Then you're probably going to want to do some job shadowing with an experienced operator. So make sure that the operator that they're shadowing is one of your better operators. They understand mm -hmm. the process, they follow the SOPs, they know what they're doing and are interested and willing to impart knowledge and take somebody under their wing for that training step. Next, you're probably going to want to do some sort of field observations with a trainer where they're doing, the new operator is doing the steps under supervision and making sure that they do it correctly and have a chance to have some question and answer about that task. Next, is key with these upset scenarios, emergency responses, these non-standard operating modes. You probably want to have some sort of oral quiz or something like that. Talk through scenarios, make sure that the operators understand if this happens, what are they expected to do? What are their responses need to be? Then you probably go to hands-on work with direct oversight by the operator. So you probably switch roles with that job shadowing that you've been doing. So then that experienced operator is the one observing the new operator doing the tasks and giving them pointers and guidance as they go along. A lot of times that's handled as like on-the-job checklists. Sometimes those are like a 30-day, 90-day, 180-day objectives where they need to have done certain tasks so many times and be observed and have somebody countersign that, yes, they met this requirement. Then usually it's followed up by final discussion and observations with a supervisor or foreman or lead operator or trainer, whoever that might be, just to confirm the qualifications and document all of that. So there should be paper trail that you've had all these observations and discussions and oversight and make sure that that paper trail gets filed away to confirm that the operator is adequately trained. So we got to document this? Oh, Man. yes. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Otherwise, the um, auditors aren't going to know what what you did. So that's right. That's right. As, as we always say, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And in the PSM regulation, there's, I guess, provision in there for if you have an operator who was operating before the PSM program started. But I, th I feel like we're probably to the point now where there are many of those folks left in the workforce, so we probably don't need to worry too much about that. Yes, yes. I, I think that there have probably been updates and changes and uh, new new training to personnel since uh, 1992. So. Yes, yes. So, okay. So that's our that's our kind of an, our list of important things to include in initial training. And obviously, training is super important for safe operations. Obviously, we want to make sure folks are trained so that that they, you know, we make good quality product or, you know, the equipment runs and doesn't break down, whatever. Okay, mm -hmm. that, that, that's absolutely true. But what we're talking about is for, for the safety of the operation, of the folks who operate that operation, the folks nearby, potentially the public, we need to make sure that we're training our folks properly for safe operations. Good operator training is assumed as a baseline for PHAs. 
and not generally considered a, a safeguard by itself. So we go into facilities that have done PHAs in the past and, you know, you look at what they use for safeguards. Oh, we've had a procedure for that. We have training for that. That's assumed as a baseline. We don't, we don't assume, we don't. You don't get um, extra credit use, for what you have we, to do. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's, it's, it's a baseline. It's, it's assumed, but in order to assume it, you've got to make sure that you, that you're doing the training. So, and then it's important to cover all phases of operation and do diligent verification and documentation. Don't just say, here's our SOPs and read through these and then we'll throw you out in the process. <laughs> Because there's, you know, depending, obviously it depends on the process, but, you know, emergency operations may come around very, hopefully come around very infrequently, but when they do, you want to make sure that your new operators are ready for them. Same thing with shutdowns, startups after shutdowns, et cetera. So you want to make sure that we're training them on all modes of operation, all non-routine modes of operation, especially and then also include, as we said before, the key PHA scenarios and then in and the incidences that have happened and or near misses that have happened in the past so that we make sure we pass on that knowledge to them. And then at the end of all of this is the verification method. And the key is that we want to make sure that we're doing a variety of that of that sort of uh, verification to make sure that we really feel that the folks who are new to the operation know the information they need to mm-hmm. to operate it safely. Right. So that's essentially that's that I think that's a good summary of kind of what we talked about here in part one of our training podcast here. Molly, do we have any other places that people can go? Yeah, so we have an earlier episode if you wanted to learn a little bit more about yeah. uh, training, episode 31 on effective operator training. And as I said earlier, this is part one of a two-part series. So look for the next episode where we'll be talking further about refresher training and other special topics for operator training. All right. Fantastic. Well, if you out there listening to this podcast, if you do have any questions about the material that we covered here or have an idea for a podcast or anything like that, feel free to send us a voicemail using the link that is in our episode description, or you can shoot an email to podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. And finally, our goal at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems. And it's our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like fires, explosions, or toxic releases. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help guide you on your process safety journey. And Molly, thank you for hosting this podcast and audience, thank you for listening. And until next time, Be safe out there. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.